1: Good day, welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I am pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black, CBE. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus at Exeter University. He is a senior fellow at the Policy Exchange and at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He has written well over 150 books making him by far the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today. And we are discussing today his latest book, or one of, I should say, one of his latest books, um, Tank Warfare, published by Indiana University Press. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, uh, what is the thesis of your book? The
0: uh, The attempt of the book is to re-examine the role of the tank in military history, and it comes in a sequence of books. I've done one on air power, uh, one on naval warfare since 1860, one on counterinsurgency, one on combined operations, one on fortifications, etc., in which in each case, what I've tried to do is to take the subject and instead of doing what so often is the case, in which people tell you that this is the key thing and that if you don't understand this, you won't understand military history, I've tried instead the slightly harder task, uh, but more mature task, of talking about the strengths and weaknesses of those particular uh, weapons systems or means of warfare and uh, tactical, operational and strategic levels.
1: Why do you regard the influence of Sir Basil Liddell Hart on the historiography of tank warfare as being, quote, problematic, unquote?
0: Thank you. Well, problematic's a marvelous term. It's an academic term for me, for meaning that <laughs> there are serious problems here. Um, Liddell Hart um, was a man of great talent, um, and as indeed he was quite keen to tell you, um, but he was also primarily concerned to endorse, often without qualification, his own ideas. And he saw armour as providing a way to um, unlock what he he regarded as often the impasse of the modern 20th century uh, battlefield. And what I think happened as a result of that was to slant the, not just his own work, which is fair enough, I mean, everybody has their own interpretations, but also more particularly to slant the wider uh, perception, because Little Hart was not just a um, an influential, though not as much as he thought, writer in the 1920s and 30s, but he became very much the, if you like, the key popular uh, writer on war in Britain, Um, In the post-World War II period, and he took roles, for example, his general editorship of Burnell's history of the 20th century, sorry, World War II, which I think in the United States was published by Ballantines, and he took roles which meant that his views could be widely disseminated.
1: What is your definition of a tank?
0: Ah well, there you go. I mean, much of the book, it's a subtext. I mean, obviously, and I do discuss this in the book, I mean, usually people put in guns, armour, internal combustion engine and tracts. Though, as I then discuss, and we'll come to those in a second, but as I then discuss, that also means that you include things like self-propelled guns, which some people would call tanks and some people wouldn't. So essentially, you're combining mobility with firepower, the mobility provided by an internal combustion engine as opposed to 19th century ideas that maybe you could have the equivalent of steam traction engines on land. Um, The guns and the armor uh, very much come from the extent to which a you want to provide protection That's armor and firepower, but also in a way, and this is interesting, represent a extrapolation into land warfare of the model of the warship of that period, and the tracks are designed to provide all-terrain coverage and therefore differentiate a tank from, shall we say, an armored car, which is generally wheeled and, of course, but also has an internal combustion engine, guns, and armor. Now, that all sounds very easy but as you will know um the that includes that definition includes many um fighting vehicles that are not always referred to as tanks and in particular what it means is that you move away from a focus on what has been increasingly called uh of recent decades the main battle tank in other words a very heavily armored Um, vehicle which has a very powerful gun so for the general public let's say the tiger tank or the abrams tank and in fact if you're talking about guns and armor and internal combustion engines and tracks you're also including for example those tanks of the 20s and 30s which were armed essentially with machine guns now, some people refer to those as tankettes rather than tanks, but actually there is no inherent reason why the gun that we're talking about should fire a shell as opposed, you know, a sort of an armor-piercing shell, as opposed to having a machine gun projectile. So there's no clear definition. There is a problem that most people, when they think of tanks, think of the more heavily armored, heavily gunned uh, parts of the spectrum, uh, but what that does is, in fact, um, almost prejudge the issue of, of the effectiveness, of other, or otherwise, of, of tank warfare.
1: What, if any, were the historical predecessor of the tank?
0: Well, um, wheeled vehicles that were uh, armoured Um, obviously, and could provide firepower. You can think, for example, of the the chariot. Um, Indeed, J.F.C. Fuller in his book, Tanks in the Great War, uh, discusses chariots, and those generally carried people who were archers. You didn't have to have an archer in them, but so if you're thinking of the widespread uh, fighting in the Middle East or in China, they have archers. Then other potential uh, predecessors are armoured battering rams or siege towers equipped with catapults, Um, Those one, that's one type, or you can then move into battle wagons um, as used for example by the Hussites in the early 15th century. They had stone-filled carts with spikes to the fore that were rolled down hills and their use resembles the initial use of tanks in World War I in helping to break through enemy ranks. And, of course, war wagons were also used um, in much of the uh, Islamic warfare of the early 16th century. Uh, none of these are that close to tanks, but nevertheless, they can all be seen as trying to combine mobility and firepower I think it's really the 19th century because it's in the 19th century that steam power and in particular locomotive steam power, in other words, steam power that moves with the vehicle as opposed to a stationary steam engine. Locomotive steam power carried with it the idea that you would actually be able to change the situation and combine firepower and mobility, and that this was the form of modernity. Now, what that left unclear was whether it would move, when we're talking about land here, whether it would move on rails, and you get ideas of armoured, electric-powered, or steam-powered, gunned vehicles moving fast on rails. And of course, that leads to that 20th-century use, as in. Um, the Chinese Civil War, sorry, the Chinese Warlord Era Wars or the Russian Civil War, or indeed uh, they were used uh, in the World Wars of armoured uh, armored trains. Um, the different thing about the what we conventionally call the tank is this represented an attempt to the power not to be on the rails, but to be able to transverse land. And initially, as I've mentioned, the idea was that you would use um, the kind of power traction from steam, uh, but uh, that was rapidly changed to a sort of uh, what were regarded as motor war cars and that, that term was used early on and um, by December 1914 Maurice Hankey, who was the Secretary to the British Committee on Imperial Defence, an influential figure, there's just been an important new biography on him, uh, referred to um, Uh, vehicles propelled from behind by motor engines uh, uh, and the driver's seat armoured and with a maxim that's a machine gun fitted Um, and that is in a sense part of where we're going so Then in 1915, 1916, the British and the French pulled together existing technologies. So you've got treads, you've got multiple wheel and multiple axle assemblies – You've got an armoured carapace, in effect, an insect uh, exoskeleton, uh, and you've got limited traverse sponsons for the guns, and they all appear together in the form of the tank. And some of those come over from steam tractors, and some of those are innovations from warships.
1: Why did the British and the French, but not the Germans, invent the tank during the Great War?
0: Well, that's a fascinating question, Charles, and it's always difficult but interesting to try and explain why something doesn't happen. I mean, there are several things one could argue. You could argue that there was a greater degree of inflexibility in the German patenting of new weaponry. Um, You could argue that the British, particularly the Admiralty, and Churchill is an important figure here, were very innovative in their approach to weaponry. Think, for example, of their role in developing bombing um, in 1914, for example, long-range bombing. Um, So I think that uh, there is a mixture of factors. The Germans also have enormous pressure on uh, the um, their metallurgy, their steel production. There's real pressure on that. I don't suppose that necessarily encourages innovation. And on top of that, of course, in um, 1915, their principal offensive is on the Eastern Front where they don't really need to overcome sophisticated trench systems. In 1916, they do attack at Verdun but they're relying fundamentally, as they do in their 1918 offensive, on artillery backed infantry. And their innovation, their major innovation in the second half of the war, is the form of stormtrooper um, trying to break through and into opposing front lines by small groups of mobile infantry carrying weapons with them, rather than with a large prepared tank force. So they're going in different directions. But one of Germany's problems in both world wars is, although it is an industrially impressive society, it is also trying to act as the world power on the back of what in that sense is an inadequate uh, industrial base. And I think that is a problem for them. It's a problem in World War II, of course, as well.
1: How successful was the tank in the Great War? Did it do what its inventors hoped it would do? No,
0: I don't I think it's fair to say that the tank um, did not do what had been hoped for, although looked at differently. The investment in the tank was understandably considerably more modest than the investment in either heavy artillery or indeed light artillery. I mean, the the British use of the mortar, for example, and the development of the Stokes mortar is a very impressive form of technology. so the tank discussion of the tank, as you probably know, it was first used by the British in 1916. Uh, a lot of the discussion of it relates to its use in 1917, the Battle of Cambrai, its use in 1918, the Battle of Amiens, um, and the plans for 1919. And tanks had value in these on these occasions, and there's no two, dou- two ways about that. But also, and this is no surprise for a new weapon system. Uh, There were serious structural issues revealed and also the enormous problems of maintenance um, and uh, and overcoming the the problems of the terrain, of trenches, of shell holes and so on. Um, The tanks certainly were effective at a tactical level in breaking through uh, and into German defences on the two offensives I've mentioned. Um, But it would be wrong to abstract them from the general pattern of um, allied military success in the second half of 1918. And that military success, as I've tried to show in my book on the Great War, is much more multifaceted. And I think it is more important to consider, uh, in particular, the British dominance of the three-dimensional battlefields, the use of aerial reconnaissance to provide very accurate artillery fire, and also the development of more effective infantry assaults. And if you're looking, therefore, at the great success, which is that the Western Allies, so that includes, obviously, the Americans, the breakthrough the German front line in 1918 break through the Hindenburg line, defeat the main battle army of the German army, whereas in 1944-45, although their achievement was enormously impressive, the reality was the main German units were facing the Soviets. um, That success by the Allies in 1918 is one that is helped by tanks, but not caused by tanks.
1: In his private diary, at the beginning of the Battle of Combré in November 1917, Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig noted that tanks, in order to be used properly, needed to have infantry as, quote, skirmishers to clear away hostile guns, unquote. Would you agree with him uh, circa November
0: 1917? Uh, yes, I think I would agree with him. Um, uh, and indeed, I would agree with that in general with tanks. I mean, the problem with any weapons system is what the other side threw up against it as the anti-weapon system. And most people think that the standard anti-weapon system against a tank is another tank. But actually, generally, it isn't. And in World War One, it certainly wasn't. The uh, If you're looking at Cambrai in 1917, um, apart from the large number of tanks that full foul of mechanical uh, failings... Um, the Germans make the most of their damage to the uh, British tanks by uh, artillery fire. Um, um, On the first day at Cambrai, 65 British tanks were destroyed thanks to direct hits by German artillery fire. They're slow moving. Um, There isn't, as it were, much cover on a World War One battlefield. Uh, The trees are all gone. and ordinary field guns employing just direct fire and firing high explosive shells were very effective. On top of that, anti-tank mines, which originally were just shells buried with the fuses just below the surface, um, were also effective. So what Haig was saying was correct. And um, I think uh, the speed of the tank in World War I exemplifies uh, the need for... Uh, combined operations, Um, you then get, and this is one of the areas in which Little Heart does go adrift, you then get this sort of, later in the century, this cult of the tank, um, that it can be, as it were, able to surpass uh, other weapon systems, that it doesn't need to be coordinated with them. And what, in a sense, World War II demonstrates, and indeed is to be demonstrated anew for the Israelis in 1973, is that you actually do need uh, combined operations in order to be successful.
1: Which military power and which theorist in the interwar period best anticipated the future usage of the tank as per what occurred during World War II?
0: Well, that's a fascinating question, and my answer would be nobody. Um, My answer would be that um, the um, most – well, what I would point out is that the military powers that – had people who talked about tanks and who made developments with tanks and who acquired tank forces. And you can think here of the Soviets, the British, the French, the Germans being the most obvious, uh, nevertheless remained uh, understandably dominated by generals, um, who had um, made their way up? Their formative experiences were in 1917, 1918, and they tended to put the emphasis on uh, infantry and armor. So in Britain, place so not armor, infantry and artillery. So in Britain, people like Milne, who was chief of the Imperial General Staff, or Montgomery Massingbert, who had the same uh, position. Um, in germany people like sect for example in the 1920s uh, these were the um, key figures Um, and um, to a certain extent it requires uh, particular reasons to explain uh, why Um, changes occur. So in Germany, which is what people usually focus on, one of the things that's very interesting is that the um, military leadership of the army is completely transformed between uh, 1938 and 1941, um, which very much does mean that people offering newer solutions um, come more to the fore. Um, In the Soviet Union, as you probably know, the standard argument is that there was this brilliant military system, that this was all understood to Khrushchevsky, that these people were purged by a stupid Stalin, and that then the hard lessons had to be relearned. I think that exaggerates the capacity of the Soviet tank force in 36-37. Um, And indeed, the manoeuvres of 36 had shown some quite serious flaws with them. Um, So I'm not sure that one would say that anybody, and this is not surprising, the tanks, it's like the aircraft, the tanks and aircraft of the 20s and the 30s were not really up to the specifications. So, for example, take bombing. You could have air power theory at the beginning of the 20s and you can talk about Mitchell and Trenchard and Douay and all the rest of it. But in practical terms, as I tried to show in my book on the history of air power, it's really 1943, 44, 45, where you see the capacity for um, long-range, uh, heavy bombing. And of course, you need, in the case of the assault on Germany, you need long-range fighters to go with that. So the, the the technologies come together at a particular stage. And I would point out that many of the tanks being used in 38, 39, 40, in the early stages of World War Two are very vulnerable indeed to not just mechanical breakdown, uh, as of course was a big problem for the Germans in blitzkrieg, uh, but also in fact to uh, defending artillery fire. Uh,
1: What does the German success in 1940 and 1941 tell us about the then evolution of tank warfare?
0: Well... um, What I would argue is that the German strategy and operational plan in 1940 is risky, but it succeeds in large part because of serious deficiencies of French strategy and planning, particularly the deployment of French mechanized reserves on the advancing left flank, so they weren't available in a reserved capacity. And I would argue that as a result of that, the as it were, the, the French flaws magnify the German capability rather than the German capability being able to determine victory. I mean, that's how I would see it, and I've tried to argue that in a number of books on World War II. Um, and I do think people are apt to forget the problems that affected the um, German use of armor in um, in in that period, and indeed, the limitations of, of German doctrine. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that Blitzkrieg wasn't a unified concept, and it's possibly best to use phrases such as the effective use of air and mechanized forces, rather than to use Blitzkrieg. And, you know, what I would argue is that, well, you know, what we know, much of the German army was unmechanized, it walked into battle the reality of weaponry and logistics based on the internal combustion engine was only poorly understood. Um, and I, I, I think that there is a real problem in the way in which um, Blitzkrieg is often written about. But as you know, I've I, argued that extensively elsewhere. I mean, I do discuss it in this book on the tank. But um, in that respect, my book on the tank is not new as far as my own work is concerned.
1: What does German strategic failure in the Russian front in 1941-1942 tell us about the limitations of tank warfare?
0: Well, again, that's a fascinating question. Um, I mean, the Germans have multiple problems with their strategy on the Eastern front, not least that they hadn't satisfactorily worked out how they were going to impose defeat on the and surrender on the Soviets, as opposed to killing a lot of them and taking territory, um, and they obviously suffered from a lack of a, uh, an ability to determine whether they were principally interested in seizing particular areas of territory or making particular uh, assaults on um, percentages of the Soviet war uh, war machine, um, and they also found it difficult to deal with the Soviet defence in depth. So there's multiple elements of flaws. And that's only just a few of them. Um, And I've not once mentioned the word tank in that uh, matter. But if you're looking at specifically at tanks, I mean, the Germans also suffered from a lack of investment in uh, tank production. They launched uh, 3,350 tanks uh, German, that includes the Romanians, but most of them were German. They launched those at uh, on the Eastern Front, but there was actually insufficient tanks in number Uh, and increasingly so because if you look at the map, you'll be aware as the Germans move eastwards, the front of their advance expands, and that's because of the configuration of the Baltic. Uh, Also, their armor was affected by the the terrible, the abysmal uh, way in which the Germans run logistics. So there were serious fuel shortages. There were major maintenance problems. There was a shortage of spare parts and ammunition. All of those uh, are very serious, problems for the Germans throughout the war. Their ability to repair their tanks in situ was lower than that of their opponents, etc, etc. So there are big problems with the German tank force qua tank force and uh, that leaves aside the question of their actually being committed in support of a very poor strategy. So it's not surprising that they have uh, major difficulties, and um, they're also starting to be up against not just the effectiveness of the Soviet defensive artillery, but also the fact that Soviets now have impressive tanks. Now, I think it's fair to say that if you're looking at armoured warfare in '41, first of all, the Germans are losing more tanks than they anticipate from day one. Um, uh, but never and nevertheless the the uh, they uh, prove more effective in mobile warfare than the soviets do the soviet use of their tanks isn't always good but nevertheless soviet tanks can still destroy german ones and you've got uh, the soviets have got the T34 And then you've got a series of other uh, Soviet tanks. You've got their heavy tank, the KV-1A, which is, you know, it's got a 76.2 millimeter gun. That's a significant gun, and that same gun was carried by the T-34. So these are formidable tanks. And now, on the one hand, that leads the Germans to upgrade their medium tanks, and also to press forward with the development of the heavy tanks. And you can focus on the German success in doing that, but it's equally well to point out that they reveal the deficiencies of the provision of German tanks at that point.
1: Would it be true to say that the Allied, Anglo-American, Russian, uh, or Soviet, emphasis on producing in mass standard issue and serviceable, albeit slightly inferior design, weapons, including tanks, was one of the key variables in the eventual Allied victory?
0: Well, I think it's very important. I think you're absolutely right in that, Charles. I think it's very important. But I wouldn't wish to necessarily say that the Allies therefore had uh, worse tanks always than their opponents. I mean, you've got to bear in mind that not all the German tanks are Tiger 1s or Panthers, for example. So the Germans are still deploying a lot of other tanks. Um, So I think one's got to be careful in that. And also, there are uh, a tank, as we mentioned earlier, brings together a lot of technologies. And some of the ones that one's got uh, for the Allies are actually very good. So the the British are using very good uh, armor-piercing shells. providing, you know, sub-caliber projectiles that actually can do a lot of damage. And, you know, these are able to penetrate much German armour. And on top of that, the British 25-pounder field gun you know, is probably the most effective field gun by the end of the war. And that, again, uh, can, you know, produce a certain amount of mess. I mean, remember, with the tank, you don't just have to penetrate its, its tank armor, which is often very difficult in order to wreck damage with it. You can simply cause damage to the tracks of the tank, and that can cause a lot of problems. Um, I mean, as you may know, for the United States, there's a lot of debate as to whether the uh, the late arrival of the M26 Pershing, which had a 90 millimeter gun, uh, whether that was a flaw in American uh, procurement or whether, in fact, this was a sensible response to the needs of the fourth profile needs of the of the United States forces. And you can have tanks that are too big and not well thought out i mean the germans after all produced a number of those in prototype form and i think it's fair to say that um it the uh the allies you know had some problems in this respect i mean there was a tank called the black prince which was a british prototype for a heavier churchill uh, tank, but it turned out to be underpowered and could only reach 11 miles an hour. So in other words, that's a classic example of a tank that was too big. Um, it had a good gun, but, uh, you know, it was just it was just hopeless. Um, but what you're bringing out very successfully is that there is no perfect specification for a tank or any other weapon system. And that one of the things that you need to think about is the practicality in production, the practicality in training, the practicality in um, maintenance, and the practicality in deployment. Now, I mention all of those in my book on technology and war, uh, and I would say tanks exemplify those points.
1: My son Alex, who is a tank devotee, particularly the tanks of the Second World War, wanted to ask you the following question. Which tank was better in opera- operational combat t34 or pants of three
0: um in the quantities available i would go by pounds of three i take it he means uh, uh yeah uh, in the quantities available i would go for the t34 uh i think the point you made earlier about the the numbers available is an important point because a German tank run, ran the risk of being mobbed, as it were. And that, I think, is very important, particularly if it could involve uh, being attacked uh, from the side and the back. But a lot does depend. If you're looking at what I would say to, uh, to your son is if he's looking at how tanks operate is individual Uh, weapons, a lot does depend upon the skill of the commander and the particular terrain so in other words it's your ability to sense where your opponent is it's your ability to understand the potential lines of fire of opposing tanks and um, anti-tank guns all of those are significant now for the German tanks that you are mentioning much of the usage that people focus on is on um, 43 to the end of the war, in which, although there are German offensives on the Eastern Front, the last significant one is Kursk, and thereafter the German tanks and tank forces on the Eastern Front are always on the defensive. So with reference to his question, It partly depends upon the ease of defending the particular terrain they are in and the extent to which the other side, the opposing side, the attacking side, is supported by uh, air superiority and artillery superiority. So if you've got a well-dug-in German tank with a clear field of fire, then it is going to beat a T-34. If, on the other hand, you have, as you increasingly did by the last two years of the war in particular, uh, Soviet cannon fire, uh, rocket firing as well, um, sort of ground attack aircraft, uh, plus significant artillery support, and you don't have an ability to dig yourself in, uh, then the German tank is, in many respects, a dead duck, particularly at daylight. Nighttime, it's easier, of course, but particularly at daylight. Um, So partly, it really does depend upon the specifications. The same thing, I would say, in Normandy. I mean, obviously, the individual German tanks there can be very impressive and uh, inflicted a lot of damage on uh, Allied tanks. But it's worth bearing in mind that the German tanks proved less effective in the offensive in the Normandy campaign, for example, the battle around Mortain, whereas they proved more effective combined with anti-tank guns in, attack, in resisting Allied advances, say Operation Goodwood. And again, it's worth bearing in mind that German tank forces caught in the open by Allied um, ground attack aircraft um, you know, it doesn't matter how good the individual tank's going to be, it is vulnerable. It is seriously vulnerable.
1: Would it be true to say that the Soviets were better able to deploy, or I should say employ tanks, in deep penetration operations than the British and the Americans? Yes. I mean, I think that um,
0: it's fair to say the Soviets had the advantage in the sense that they'd started off doing that earlier Uh, the distances were greater um, and if you're looking at it from the perspective of the um, British and the Americans Italy doesn't lend itself to deep penetration offensives although it's worth bearing in mind that both the British and the American commanders messed up the exploitation of June, July, 1944. Uh, In France, I think it's generally agreed that the British and the Americans were not as good uh, at exploiting the situation created by the Normandy breakout, but in their favor, the logistical situation was very, very difficult for them. And of course, they were being expected to move rapidly from the close quarter high tempo fighting in Normandy to an exploitation advance. But what they didn't successfully do is outmaneuver and uh, cut off large defending forces uh, after the Falaise operation, the German forces that were cut off were ones that had stayed in uh, coastal fortifications or instructed to do so by Hitler. Um, But the bulk of the German army in France is able to retreat to the German frontier, where they then put up a good uh, struggle in areas like the Hunsrück against the Americans and, of course, at Arnhem against the British. Uh, And in part, I mean, some of those units had been moved from elsewhere, but in part it reflects the, the failure of the Western Allies to do better at exploiting their breakthrough. Um, on the other hand, the Americans and the British do a good job once they've broken across the Rhine in 45, in launching deep penetration uh, offensives, which prevent the Germans creating new defensive lines. I mean, the Germans go on fighting hard. Many of them, you know, um, uh, absolutely imbued with Nazi ideology to the end. Um, and they go on inflicting a lot of casualties. Uh, and the British and the Americans prove extremely successful. The British in overrunning northwest Germany and breaking through to the Baltic. The Americans in overrunning the large areas of Franconia and Bavaria. So those are there's a higher level of effectiveness in '45. Than in '44, and I'm not surprised at that.
1: Why are you skeptical about the Soviets' post-1945 ability to overrun Western Europe in a war with the um, uh, NATO uh, powers?
0: Well, I'm skeptical about their ability to do it with a mass armor advance. I mean, I think that the um, a lot of the Soviet mechanization in 43, 44, 45 was dependent at least in part on um, allied uh, British and American uh, supplies of um, working parts uh, for which the Soviets had only a limited production capability. um, And also the Soviets would have had, you know, their forces were very variable in quality and they would have been up against um, uh, units which had not been exhausted by uh, frequent fighting and most cases on the Eastern Front frequent defeat over the previous two years. I'm not saying, though, that the Soviet Union, if it had attacked as it planned to do, would not have been a formidable challenge. Uh, Obviously, the nature of that challenge varies depending upon what you're assuming is going to happen with atomic weaponry. If you assume that atomic weaponry, including tactical nuclear weapons, um, is going to be used rapidly, then quite frankly, the armor would only be able to achieve so much. If, on the other hand... You are assuming that the, um, the um, how should one put it, that there would be a non nuclear war, that both sides would try and avoid nuclear the use of nuclear weaponry, then clearly the success of uh, respective tank forces was, would have been important.
1: What would you say was the most successful tank of the Cold War era? Oh,
0: that's a fascinating uh, question, because, of course, most of the tanks were not used as had been intended in uh, the very kind of struggle we've just been talking about. So, for example, you know, you're not getting if you're looking at Soviet, say, T-54s or 55s or 62s, they're not being used by trained Soviet units. Uh, they're being used by, say, the Syrians in 1973, who are much less good. Um, and a lot, and to see equally, the the Israelis are using, for example, in that very war, uh, American M48s and M60s. So a lot does depend upon whom is using the the uh, the respective armour. The Soviets made not bad armour but it tended to be used mostly by forces which often had a sort of organizational rigidity, which is one of the great problems for the Egyptians, the Syrians, and the Iraqis. Um, The American tanks used by the Israelis, the tanks are fine, but what's crucial is that the Israelis are, uh, although their fighting effectiveness deteriorates against the Egyptians in uh, 1973, but the Israelis on the whole outfight and outcommand their opponents and I think that's a very important point by the end of the of the Cold War um, you've also got large numbers of tanks by produced by different powers I'm thinking for example about the German Leopard tank which is a very good mobile tank able to move at speed but I think it's fair to say we don't have a you know, and thankfully, we don't have a war to test out how well that would have done in the event of the um, Soviets advancing through the Falder Gap. So a lot of it does depend not so much about the tank, but about the usage of the tank, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier when we discussed the relationships between main battle tanks, you will recall, and lighter tanks. It's not that one. Is necessarily better than another. In part, it also depends upon what your intentions are for them. If your intentions for tanks are to take part in helping in coups, uh, as for example, uh, you know, let's say in Chile in 1973, you need a very different kind of tank to if you're in- proposing to engage with other main battle tanks.
1: How, if at all, did tank warfare evolve in the post forty five period?
0: Well, there wasn't a large scale sustained war between very significant tank war forces. There were conflicts: the uh, India Pakistan one, the uh, Ara- ones, the Arab Israeli ones, the Iraq Iran ones, in which tanks were important, but. Um, They weren't on the scale of the uh, possibility of a clash on the North German plain, which had been what NATO and the Warsaw Pact had been prepared for. What tank warfare showed is that it was most significant as part of combined Operations. So, for example, in the conflicts we've been mentioning, or for example, in the use by North Vietnam of tanks in its offensive in 1972, the Easter or Spring offensive, uh, tanks were vulnerable to uh, to air attack. Uh, that was shown. Tanks were also shown to be vulnerable. Well, no, of course, but this was shown uh, because, and this became more the case as uh, guided missiles became rather than uh, dumb bombs, uh, became uh, much more uh, used. So the vulnerability of tanks to air attack increased, and ditto with anti-tank guns and, in fact, even more anti-tank missiles and heat-searching missiles were a problem for both tanks and for aircraft.
1: Would it be true to say that tank warfare was not, for you, a deus ex machina, but one variable among many, in the Israeli victories in their wars with the Arabs.
0: I think that's an absolutely correct. I think that you put it on the, hit it on the nail. That doesn't mean tanks were not without consequence, but it does mean you shouldn't write your history around them as if they made the total and fundamental difference. And, of course, the Israelis discovered that um, there was an overconfidence uh, in the run-up to 73 I and mean, in 73 itself. And they discovered that at the tactical level up against, um, for example, as, as did the Israeli Air Force, up against uh, Egyptian uh, missiles. But they also discovered it in a very different context strategically um, in terms of the um, use of um, uh, the army, which proved much better in its conventional role of attacking or, or defeating other Arab uh, 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 Arab forces, rather than as an occupation force coping with the strains of insurrection.
1: In your conclusion, you state, quote, the future of the tank is unclear, unquote. Why is that the case, and what can we safely say about the future of the tank?
0: Well, I think it's certainly true that the future of the tank is unclear. It's an expensive system. It's vulnerable to uh, explosives and to missiles. Um, it has enormous uh, uh, cost implications. I mean, all of those points, and I discussed those at some considerable length, and I think those are important because all too much of the writing about tanks focuses on World War One, World War Two and um, these Cold War conflicts we've mentioned. And as I've said, I, I, you know, in my book, I try and give a lot of weight to the recent usage of tanks and to current discussion. As you will know, some forces, the United States Marines, for example, the British Army, have been discussing either ending tank usage or putting tank usage very much um, under question marks whereas there are other militaries the iranians the russians the chinese that are developing new generation tanks Um, so clearly tank tanks go on providing mobility and firepower but they are only useful if you have a considerable number of them and i'm not sure that that really provides one uh, with the wherewithal to deal with some of the great military challenges of the modern age. Both uh, weapon challenges, you know, I mean, after all, a drone can be used to to, to literally attach itself to a tank and blow it up. So both, both weapon t- challenges, which you might regard as tactical challenges, But also, uh, on top of that, strategic talent is um, what exactly are you going to do with tanks that might be able to, uh, you know, parade down a boulevard that may not be able to do very much if you're facing large-scale insurrection.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from this book, what would it be?
0: And what I would like them to take away from it is that military, and I'd like I'd like to feel they would take away from all of my books on war, and there are many of them, that military history is a serious subject. That while it is interesting to present it as is fashionable at the moment in terms of face of battle and you know, the experience of the individual soldier. And whilst that produces some brilliant books, and I know and respect those people that write them, nevertheless, you need a serious discussion at every stage of the strengths and weaknesses at the tactical, operational, and strategic level of weapon systems on their own and in combination, and that is what I'm trying to do. If people risk their lives, they need to feel that other people are devoting their intelligence and their ability to try to understand what can best be achieved by force. All too much of the literature doesn't really adequately address that, but this is what I have tried to do in my work on military studies.
1: On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black.
0: Thank you very much.